Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this part of our service where we open God's Word and we teach from it, we learn from it, we, we allow God to change us, to transform us, to make us to become total followers of Jesus Christ. We're starting a new series today. It's in the book of Nehemiah, which is in the Old Testament, and uh, you can find that. It's sort of halfway through the Old Testament. Uh, you get through a whole bunch of the, the history ones. It's just before Job, or Esther, then Job, and then you hit the Psalms. If you go that far, you've gone a little too far, so you're back in, in Nehemiah. And I've got to say, I am so excited about the series. I love the book of Nehemiah. It's one of my most favorite books it's taught me so much over the years about leadership. Leadership, which if you, you want a quick definition of what that is, leadership is all about moving someone or a group of people or something from current to future, from here to there. You start here, you need to put leadership in to get to there. And leadership is not only something which other people do, the most challenging thing we get to lead is usually ourselves. And so when you think about it for a minute, every single one of us has this responsibility to lead. Because if you're anything like me, I know where I am now and I know where I want to be and I've got to work out how to get there. Nehemiah's going to help me with that. And over the years, it's encouraged me, this book has inspired me, it's strengthened me and it's shaped me. It's the personal memoirs of a leader. And Nehemiah was serving in the government of the king of Persia. He was captivated by a vision of what could be in a city some 1,300 kilometers away from where he lived. It's a story of a leader who rallies together a discouraged and defeated nation around a vision. It's the story of a person who secures the necessary resources to see vision become reality. The book takes us inside his thinking and it helps us see how he planned and how he prepared, how he dealt with discouragement, how he dealt with distractions, how he dealt with disunity. It teaches us how to stay on course as a leader and not lose hope. And it uncovers what keeps the leader's heart strong as they inspire and motivate people to rebuild what was broken and what was lost. It's a sublime book on leadership. It's also a book about rebuilding a wall. You see a bit of a history here. When the Babylonians, some 150 years before the book of Nehemiah was written, before Nehemiah was being Nehemiah, the people of Israel were deported. They were, they were attacked by the Babylonians and uh, they were deported away from their area, from the city and from the region. And Jerusalem at that point pretty much became a ghost town. And the deported Jews found themselves in Babylon where they settled down and began to make homes for themselves. And while many of them followed the God of their fathers, they did it from Babylon with no desire to return to the lands that had been promised to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob, their forefathers. It's interesting, some of them found themselves in significant positions in the government of the land they were deported to. You may have heard of people like Daniel, or Shadrach, or Meshach, or Abednego. They became leaders in Babylon. You may have heard of a, 
of a woman called Esther, who became a queen in the courts of the Persian king. These were all people who were in this time. And then after 70 years of captivity in in Babylon, as prophesied by the Lord, they were given the opportunity to return to their homeland. Here's a little map which shows you where this all looks like. You can see Jerusalem, Israel there on the left-hand side, and Babylon, so they come up over the top and down the bottom, Babylon, and you see there, around there, and then Susa, which is where Nehemiah is. Right, they, they started off uh, coming back, and the first person, you see they're about 538 to 515 BC, the first leader, uh, well, one of them, his name was Zerubbabel, which I just think is a fantastic name, don't you? Right, like, like Jerusalem was in rubble, right? It was in ruins, and so God raises up a guy called Zerubbabel to lead the people back to the rubble. I think it's, I, yeah, I, I, I like that. So he comes back and then Ezra leads people back and during Ezra's time an attempt was made to rebuild the walls after they had rebuilt the temple. Ezra led them to rebuild the temple and they did that and they laid the spiritual foundation and then he also tried to rebuild the wall but there was opposition and it failed. And the book of Nehemiah begins 15 years after the book of Ezra ends, some 150 years after the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. So put that into context. We're talking, if, if this was today, 2020, we're talking, you know, Wellington City destroyed in 1870. And we're going to move from, how far is 1,300 kilometers away? I'm going to say if we're in Auckland, it's about Invercargill, isn't it? Right? So if it was Auckland, it was in Chicago. So if we uh, imagine moving that far away to a city that was destroyed 150 years ago in 1870, and it's a ruin, it's a rubble. You can imagine it would be after that period of time. And during Ezra's time, this attempt was to, made to rebuild it, but opposition ensured it failed. And Nehemiah, the story is about him rebuilding the walls. You know, it's one thing to lead a people to build something the first time around, Nehemiah's challenge was to pick up a vision that had earlier failed. And Ezra started and it failed, and the impossibility of that was etched into the psyche of the people. All they could see was the rubble, all they could see was the ruin, all they could see was what was not. No one thought this could be overcome. The walls lay in ruin and the people stayed in trouble and enter Nehemiah, the leader who makes a difference. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Come up on the screen. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Yeah, you've got to ask a a question. Why would Nehemiah inquire about a struggling remnant of people who lived hundreds of miles away that he was disconnected with through a history of about 150 years? Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He he had a position of responsibility, a position of authority in the government of, of Persia. He was secure and he was successful as much as you could be under the reign of that king. And he could quite well be excused for looking at the people 1,300 kilometers away in Jerusalem and saying, it's got nothing to do with me. It's not my 
fault or my problem that my previous generations had made a mess of things and they got exiled. Uh, I, I, could, I can simply be indifferent about it. Yes, there might be a problem, but that doesn't really concern me. I'm going to keep living my well-formed, safe life. But he didn't. He questioned. He wanted to know, and leadership often starts with a question, and mighty works usually start with a question. Leaders question. They said to me, verse 3, those who survived the exile are back in the province. They're in great trouble and disgrace. And this is defined this way. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Leaders not only ask questions, leaders get the facts. And the fact here was was that the walls were broken and the gates had been burned. And the state of the people and the bad state of the city walls are closely connected. You see, in, in an ancient world, a city without walls is a city completely open and vulnerable to its enemies. They had no defense for the people. They had no defense for the assets. If you lived in an unwalled city, you lived in constant stress and tension. You'd never know from one day to the next when you might be attacked and brutalized. People who lived in a city without walls were vulnerable and were exposed. They lived in fear, not in freedom. Yeah, we, we might think today, man, imagine being in a city with walls. How constricting. That would be like, you know, being trapped. And I say, no, no, no. In a city with walls, there's freedom. It's interesting if you think about that in terms of our lives, isn't it? We have the walls of God's word. It gives us the, the boundaries in which to live. And sometimes you read it and you go, oh, but that's so constricting. I'll tell you, it's freedom. When you live the way God's designed us to live, it is freedom. And you live without fear. And you live without vulnerability and exposure. There is freedom in this way. Verse 4. When I heard these things, Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Leaders not only ask questions. Leaders not only get the facts. Leaders allow those facts to move them. And those facts deeply moved Nehemiah and evoked in him an incredible deep dissatisfaction with the state of Jerusalem. You can almost hear it coming from the pages of Scripture where he's, he's almost stamping his foot going, it can't continue to be this way. Something has to change. <coughs> but it's what he did next which is incredibly stunning. I am... Um, I wonder what you'd do if you had that news. I wonder if you'd set up a petition. I wonder if you'd send a letter back to the people of Jerusalem. Maybe your petition is this. Enough is enough. Let's rebuild the wall. Maybe you're, maybe you're going to go online and create some kind of crowdfunding restoration project. Maybe you think about this and you want to say, well, maybe there's a way we could lobby for funds, we could plan a capital campaign, we could engage engineers and architects, we could get all our due diligence done because you know, all of those things are going to be incredibly important to make sure that we get this project done. Well, Nehemiah doesn't do that, and I want to tell you why, because the vision hadn't yet settled in him. 
What we have right here is a reaction, a feeling, not a vision. What we have in this moment is, is Nehemiah's gut reaction. This can't be this way. And what he did in that moment, which is so profound from a leadership perspective, a Christian leadership perspective, is he prepared his heart through prayer. And it says there, he mourned and fasted and prayed. He did the most important and often the most missing step when it comes to leadership. Because I don't know about you, but what I find is when I get the facts and I work out what's going on, I go solution mode. I go, let me plan a way through this. And what Nehemiah did is he went to his closet and he got before the Lord. The vision hadn't yet settled in him. Yeah, there are some things which, as I read the pages of Scripture, there are some circumstances I would have loved to have been there. I mean, let me give you an example. I would have loved to have watched Jesus and Peter walk on the water. Anybody with me? Right, imagine that. Who would have liked to have stood outside the tomb and seen Lazarus come out from the dead? Imagine, imagine being there in that upper room when Jesus appeared. Just incredible moments throughout Scripture. You go, man, wouldn't it be great to be here? Here's another one I'd love to have eavesdropped on. Nehemiah's prayers. I wonder what he said. I wonder what he prayed. I wonder if the process looked like, as he mourned and he sensed the agony of the situation, I can imagine him starting his time of prayer. And We don't know how long it is. It says for some days, some commentators say it may have been as long as four months. And for some days he mourned and fasted and prayed. You can imagine him pacing his room going, God, it can't be this way. It's got to change. And I imagine that his fasting was not a, oh, you know, in, in, in the book of doing things to convince God that I'm serious, I need to fast for three days, so I'll do that and I can tick that off and say I've done it. I imagine his fasting was because he didn't even think about food. He was so consumed with the vision and the problem and the facts. You're prepared to do whatever it takes. I wonder if in his prayer we went through times of doubt and being overwhelmed. I can imagine going, God, the walls need to be built, but how on earth is that going to happen, God? I have no idea. I imagine him then going through times of, but you're the Lord God of heaven. You can do all things, but I can't do it. But God, you can. Could you imagine the way that he would go back and forward? And then what you have is this incredible moment where where he walks out of that room and the preparation that was so needed because the vision needed a transformed leader who trusted his God. You see, prayer changes people, not God. Prayer changes our heart. It changes us as it ushers us into the presence of the Lord of heaven and earth. And there in the throne of heaven, you begin to understand his plans and his purposes, and it radically transforms our lives. Then Nehemiah speaks. And what we have from verse 5 on is his statement. And I think it's a summary of his encounter with the Lord in prayer. It's clear, it's confident, it's compelling. It's the first of 12 recorded prayers in the book of Nehemiah, which just goes to show that it's the sweat in the prayer closet that determines the power and the clarity of the leadership. In verse 5, 
Nehemiah says this, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love for those who love him and keep his commands. He walks out of that prayer closet and and he first of all frames this. He says, I want you to know one thing, that God is a God of love who keeps his word. Faithful you are, yes and amen. You are unchangeable. You are consistent. You are trustworthy. You keep your covenant of love with those who love you and keep your commands. You know, sometimes people say, is God faithful? Can I trust him? And what he says in this moment here is, you know, when you love him and you keep his commands, you will find him to be faithful and trustworthy and true. You step outside of his commands, he is still faithful and trustworthy and true but you're incurring the other side of his faithfulness, which we'll get to in a minute. Here, the prayer, he goes on, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Nehemiah stands and he says, Lord, hear and see the prayer your servant is praying. Nehemiah has changed his vocation right there. Right, He is... In the natural, a cupbearer to the king, but he recognizes that first and foremost, he is a servant of God Most High. And he is there praying day and night for his other servants, his other people who know him. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses, I love the way that Nehemiah never said it was their fault. I confess the sins we, including myself, have made. He identified with the people. We've acted wickedly. We've disobeyed you. In other words, from the posture, the position of Babylon, of where they shouldn't be, they're supposed to be back in the promised land. Nehemiah is looking in the face of God and he says, God, we are here because you are just and you are right. And we are here because of what we have done. We're not here because you're unjust. We're not here because you forgot about us. We're not here because some cosmic thing conspired against us as a people. We're here because you told us. You said, if you will love me and obey me, you'll be in the land. If you don't, you won't. We're not on the land. We're where exactly where you told us to be. You are being faithful and you are being true to your word. Verse 8, remember... The instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. There it is again. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. If you return to me and to my commands, the promise is I'll be faithful. And I'll gather you from as far as east as from the west. I'll gather you in. Remember, Lord, remember your instruction, Nehemiah says. If we're unfaithful, you'll scatter us. We're exactly where you told us we'd be. If we return and obey your commands, you'll gather us. We'll be there too. 
And Nehemiah goes on, verse 10, he says, They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. It's like he gets to the end of the statement and he says, all of that says, one, God is faithful, God is trustworthy, God is true. What God promised, he delivered on. What he warned, he showed. Now, Lord, here we are. We're in your hands. I want you to note that there is no hint in Nehemiah's words that he doubted God was for the rebuilding of the wall. There is no theological uncertainty in Nehemiah. I think his time in his prayer closet did a number of things, but I think one of the things it did is it clarified Nehemiah's understanding about who God was and how trustworthy God is. You know, I... I sometimes wonder if when we are in a situation where things, not as they, things are not as they should be and we, we want them to be aligned, we get into a prayer closet or into a discussion or into a podcast or into a book and we find some sort of theology around who we think God might be which couldn't be further from the truth. And we walk out of our closet and we've got a faulty view of God and it means that we find that life gets really complicated. I want to encourage you, find a true theology because then that gives you incredible confidence in God. Yeah, we sing it. We sing about the trustworthiness of God and yet we sometimes act like God is out to trick us. We sing about the faithfulness of God, and yet sometimes we wonder if God's really there. We sing about the grace and the love of God, but then sometimes we act as though God can't forgive me and God can't restore me. It's like our, our actions and our theology are not lining up. Nehemiah proved the fact that leaders are confident in God. You see, if you spend your leadership energy Wondering if God is for you, you won't get very far. This means you trust God enough to be honest with him. You can tell him and agree with him about your faults and your failings. Yeah, I, I sometimes wonder if, if we have this view that if God really knew me, he'd reject me. If God really knew who I was, he really knew what I was on about, he'd refuse me. What Nehemiah teaches us is that God does not do that. You know that his desire is to rebuild you, not to tear you down. His desire is to renew you, not to refuse you. One of the most profound things you can do as you lead yourself is get the facts right. Who am I before God? Who am I? What, what are the things which are going on in my life which are out of place, which are broken, which are burnt, which are destroyed, which life has messed up, which our, our sinful, fallen world has created confusion around? Who am I? Get the facts and allow them to, to move you so you go, and I don't want it to be this way. And then don't believe the lie that God would say, you know what, because you're so badly broken, I'm, I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to reject you. I'm going to refuse you. No, be confident in the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God where he will say, come to me. I will rebuild you. I will renew you. You know, there's such an important lesson in Nehemiah, not only about leadership and ministry and in work and in business, but for ourselves. It's, we lead ourselves. 
Yes, we, we use this grid to help us with our finances and our fitness and our careers and our home. And we ask questions to get the facts so we can make a plan to move forward. But in our own walk as a follower of Jesus Christ, how are you doing? What are those questions that you have about your own state of spiritual growth? You know, how are you going? Remember last year, we did a series called Follow. We, we took seven markers of a disciple and we said, look, yeah, this is not totally comprehensive, but it's a pretty good shot of it, saying, how, how are you going in, in your Christ-like character? How are you doing in your engagement with God's Word? How are things going when it comes to prayer and to worship? How about outreach? How are you doing in sharing the gospel with other people? How are you doing in the way that you live a generous life? How are you going being committed to community, being there for each other, being supportive of each other? How are you doing in each of those areas? You know, as you lead yourself, ask the question, how am I doing? And then get the facts, because you see, facts are your friend. And as you get that, you might say, man, I'm, I'm not doing as well as I could in this area. That's not a fail. That's an incredible opportunity for God to continue to renew you. And sometimes we get a little bit caught up in ourselves and we, we adjudicate ourselves saying, oh man, I must be failing. No, you're just not there yet. And neither am I. And you know the incredible thing about it is this, is we won't be until we actually get home to the place that Jesus has prepared for us. But the promise of God is that he will complete what he has started in you. And you can trust him for that. You know, the... The first step course that Sarah talked about, that also is going to help you understand those markers. And we're currently working on a a spiritual health assessment guide to help each of us understand how we're doing and where we're going so we can put some energy into that. So there's our own growth in leading ourselves. But then there's this life-changing question that some of us have on our heart, which could be an interest about a situation or a group or a nation or a people. It could be as varied as the number of people in this room. You see, when God puts a burden on your heart, don't try to escape it because you'll miss the blessing he has planned for you. You Over the course of history, questions have led to things like slavery being abolished. Christians against poverty started. Children in sex industries set free. Unreached people groups being reached, technology being harnessed to spread the word of God. I, I wonder what, if there is a question which is lurking in your soul, which just might unlock a brokenness over something where you would look at it and say, it just can't be this way. I see this type of leadership and people in this room. I see people in this room who have a passion for people in their life group to engage in God's word. I had some of you say to me, I just, I just want the people in my life group to open God's word and to apply it to their lives. It's a passion that you have. It can't be this way. What do I do? Get the facts. What's going on? Prepare my heart. Let me lead as a shepherd to see people change. There are people in this congregation who have a passion for the people of Israel to meet Jesus. There are people in this congregation who have a passion to see people encounter the Lord through prayer. There are people in this congregation who have a passion to see young people know Christ as their Lord and Savior, for young adults to prevail in their faith as they go through university. 
There are people who have a passion to see people equipped to defend their faith, to see children cared for in safe homes. There are people who have a question around these things, and others, and all of us collectively have this question of what would it, what would it take for us to see 1% of Wellington respond to the gospel and celebrate that by being baptized, and for my friends and my neighbors to be involved and be a part of that celebration. What's the question you have? Nehemiah's prayer shaped a God-sized vision and a God-sized confidence in his heart. Are you praying enough? What are you praying? Last verse. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. I love that little statement. Isn't that beautiful? Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. We revere the name of Jesus. We honor the name of Jesus. We exalt the name of Jesus. We lift up the name of Jesus. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Leaders finally make radical requests. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The king was someone he couldn't control. The king was someone he had no sway with. Yes, he was cupbearer. And cupbearer was an interesting term. It didn't mean he came and just simply gave the king the cup that he was to drink. It meant he drank a little bit before the king because that was the king's um, health and safety risk, risk policy around um, drinking. Because uh, if someone wanted to kill the king, one of the ways that they would often do it back in those days, they'd poison the drink. And so the cupbearer had the dubious honor of having the first taste of the drink that the king was going to drink. You can imagine the king sitting there going, watching the cupbearer drink, and he'd wait, well, I should wait a couple of minutes, and if he doesn't die, it'll be safe for me to drink, right? That's the cupbearer's role. Awesome, mate. Anybody want that job? I'm sure you get to taste some really good wine, but every time you take your life into your hands. But he couldn't control the king. He could prove himself over time. But he had a huge request that he was going to ask him. And it involved time off. It involved ridiculous amounts of money. It involved the rebuilding of a vassal state of a, of a threat to the Persian nation. And he was about to walk in, and he was about to say, O mighty king, I've tasted your drink. It's all good. Now can you give me the following things? And Nehemiah in this moment says, God, give me success. Give me success in this moment. Every great leadership story contains something that is out of the leader's control. Every great supernatural leadership story contains something that only God can provide. I wonder if your life is writing a supernatural leadership story this year. What's the radical request 
that you are praying over? What is it that God is wanting to break your heart over? You know, it might be as simple as God transform me. That could be your radical supernatural request. It could be you are at this point of, of your life and you're looking back and you go, man, when I, I ask the question of how I'm doing as a follower of Jesus or as someone who is living, and I look at the facts and say, okay, I am not where I need to be. I'm not where I should be. In fact, I don't even know who I am. And I'm feeling frustrated and broken and I, and I just don't know which way is up and I feel like there's no walls. I don't know how to go. And I, But Lord, I just want to take a moment in the prayer closet and say, I want to rehearse again. You are trustworthy. You are faithful. You are true. You are the creator. You are the redeemer. You are the restorer. You renew things. You rebuild things. So God, given that, my radical request is would you change me? That could be your radical request. Your radical request could be, change my family. Rebuild my family. Your radical request could be, reach out to those I know and I love. Give me inspiration. I've been trying to to find a way to create a conversation with my neighbors, and I just have no idea how to do it. Nothing seems to work. Look, give me inspiration. That's a radical request. It could be that this year the Holy Spirit is inviting those of us who are leaders in our workplace to lead in a godly way. That up to this point, you, you've lived effectively separate lives. You have your faith and the Lord is very precious to you and the word is powerful. But when you get to your workplace, you go, yeah, but I've got this, God. I thank you for delivering me safely to my place of work, but I'm going to park you in the foyer until I clock off later this afternoon. And I'll pick you back up when I walk out because, see, when I walk into my place of work, it's business. And there's this divide, and yet the story of Nehemiah is not the story of a church thing. It's the story of rallying a nation around a broken city and restoring it. And I wonder if in some of our businesses there is some brokenness where we need to come and we need to say, you know what, I've got to get the questions, I've got to get the facts. I've got to let those facts move me. Imagine if I, as a business leader, led from the heart. Imagine if I, as a business leader, led from the prayer closet. Imagine if I took the things which are concerning me in my place of work and I spent that time mourning and fasting and praying and seeking the power of God and I walked into my place of business and I began to lead Holy Spirit empowered. And imagine if I began to make radical requests about my place of work to the Lord of heaven and earth who is trustworthy is faithful and is true. And can I suggest to you, if you did that, that when Sarah asked for people to give thanks, how many of us would be saying, God's done a miracle in my place of work? God's provided in a miraculous way. God's done breakthrough in that, that conflict situation. God's done incredible things in that business plan. God's made that, that property deal actually work out. And you see his hand of provision as you go through. I wonder this year what this might look like for you. Would you stand with me?
I'm going to close in prayer in a moment, but just before I do, take a moment. And whatever the Holy Spirit has nudged you on, convicted you on, prompted you on, just take a moment and surrender that back to him. Maybe for you it is that God actually is a part of 100% of your life. You have been leaving him at the door sometimes. Maybe for you it is that sense of your view of him is that he'll refuse you, he'll push you away, but today the Spirit has said, you know, he wants to rebuild, he wants to renew you. Trust him. Maybe for you there is a there is a question which you've been stopped in your tracks by. It's about a situation, it's about something which has been going on and you're actually a little nervous to really engage with it because you know it is likely to lead to significant change. Go there. Ask the question. Get the facts. Allow God to move you. Father, you are you're listening and you're hearing every every thought, every prayer, every response in this moment. And Lord, as we leave this place in a few moments' time, we go to prove your power in our lives. We go to prove our desire to fulfill the mission to help people become total followers of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we've, if we've learned from Nehemiah, we've learned some of his leadership lessons. I pray you would help us to lead well this week, to lead ourselves. And where we have the opportunity to lead others, and to do that for your glory, to do that in your power, to do that for the extension and the expansion of the kingdom of God. Father, we ask these things as we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. If you 